Well, the month of June has arrived. The official start of summer will be here before we know it. But the temperatures aren't the only thing heating up. No, blabbing in the bluegrass is heating up as well. And we've got a killer show for you this week. We are spending it with an exceptional educator who has been quite the inspiration to not only his former students, but also his former co-workers, his friends, and most importantly, his family. We are speaking of Mr. Rick Boggess. Now, Rick is not just any old teacher. Rick spent a number of years working with visually impaired students in the Owensboro Public School System. Further, he is totally blind himself. It's going to be a dandy, so get comfortable and get ready. Episode 2 of Season 3, Blabbit in the Bluegrass, is coming at you. Kentucky features so much more than basketball and horses. We're home to scenic spectacles and one-of-a-kind golf courses. If boating, fishing, dining, or music is your pleasure, we'll guide you to the sights and sounds that you will truly treasure. Cause we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide, cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste. From Smith Mills to Smithland, Pineville to Pikeville, nobody but nobody covers the Commonwealth like we do here on Blabbing in the Bluegrass because, after all, we explore and celebrate all things Kentucky from right here at the North Quail Motel in beautiful Henderson, I'm Sam Moore. We also celebrate our beloved current and former teachers across the state on a pretty regular basis with our brand new Exceptional Educator Spotlight. And that's what we're doing today with Rick Boggess. He holds a special spot in uh, a lot of people's hearts, uh, myself included, as well as uh, my mom. Because for those of you that didn't know, uh, I'm totally blind and Rick Boggess assisted mom in learning braille back when she first found out that uh, I was losing my sight. And that helped her to sort of read braille on the same page as me for a little bit. And so he really meant a lot to her. And then uh, as I grew up, I, I grew up one county over from Rick and Henderson, but he did help me off and on in uh, learning assistive technology devices that would go on to help me in college. Quite inspiring for all of us. So you'll want to stay right where you are. Before we dive into the uh, Bluegrass Brain Buster, among other things, I do want to point out that uh, my dear mother, Susan Moore, reminded me earlier today that this week, Kentucky is celebrating its 229th birthday. That's correct. June 1st, to be exact. On June 1st of 1792, Kentucky was officially founded 229 years old this week and still kicking. Thank you, Susan Moore, for uh, enlightening me on that fact. I knew it was 1792. I must confess I had forgotten the exact week and month. So thanks to her for reminding me. And I do want you folks to remind me of uh, facts such as this and anything else you might want to pass along from exceptional educator nominations to guest suggestions 
topics that you'd like for me to perhaps touch on at some point, don't be shy. I don't bite. My email address is bluegrassblabbing at gmail.com. B-L-U-E-G-R-A-S-S-B-L-A-B-B-I-N at gmail.com. I'm also at your service via the Blabbing in the Bluegrass Facebook page. If you're new to the show, welcome, first off. All of my previous episodes are on that Facebook page for your listening pleasure, so any ones that you may have missed or just want to hear again, they're all there. You can also stay up to date with additional information as it is presented. Make comments, leave messages. Don't be bashful because I love hearing from you, whether it be on Facebook, email, regardless. Just let me hear from you. Also, a reminder that you can listen absolutely free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, so feel free to access the program via those avenues as well. So, Rick Boggess is waiting in the wings in Owensboro, and we will get with him here in just a few shakes. But before we do, I have this week's Bluegrass Brain Buster. The goal is to do one of these each and every week, and we will uh, give you the question now, give you some time to come up with the answer, or at least try, and we will reveal the answer at the conclusion of the show. So, that birthday song, which we need to be singing to Kentucky this week, Happy Birthday to You. Did you know that song was born in Kentucky? Yep, it was written by two sisters in Louisville. Who are they? Again, your job is to name the two sisters from Louisville who wrote the song, Happy Birthday to You, which is now commonly known across the nation and around the world. You think on it, we will have your answer in the program's final segment. Happy birthday, Kentucky! Okay, I'll stop. Blabbing in the Bluegrass proudly presents an exceptional educator. Well, today we have an exceptional educator who has overcome blindness to uh, enjoy a successful career, which he uh, retired from a while back in teaching visually impaired students in the Owensboro Public School, and uh, we're here to talk about his fascinating journey from uh, K-12 all the way to undergrad up through grad school, as well as uh, his experience in the realm of education. So let's welcome to the show none other than Mr. Rick Bogus. Hello, Sam. <laughs> Rick, uh, <clears throat> so glad to have you and uh, tickled that you could join us on the uh, show this week to talk about your uh, experiences in Owensboro and beyond. Now, um, originally, you're from hometown West Virginia, right? That's right. Gosh, how many people can say their hometown is <laughs> hometown? <laughs> now, you don't know how many times I was accused of having a smart mouth, being smart to people. They say, where are you from? And I'd say, hometown. <laughs> and now tell me where you're, where you're from, they would say. So... <laughs> You weren't lying to him. I wasn't you? lying to him, no. <laughs> Gosh, what was what was the population of hometown? Uh I think about seven or eight hundred. It it okay. it was a small, unincorporated town. <laughs> well, it might have grown a little bit since then, but uh, yeah, actually it hasn't grown a lot. There's not a lot there, so uh, well <laughs> it hasn't grown. If it, if I you know, I don't know the exact population, but it hasn't grown a lot, if at all. Well, <laughs> I know uh, 
You're one of hometown's biggest claims to fame. So. Oh boy, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> and you're in Owensboro and have been for a while, but uh, it is uh, so great to have you on. Now, not only were you a uh, longtime instructor of the visually impaired, you are also, like we mentioned, uh, totally blind yourself. So why don't you explain to our listeners um, what exactly caused your blindness as a child in West Virginia? Okay. I was a premature baby, uh, although by today's standards, not terribly premature. I don't remember. I think I weighed about four pounds. And it was quite common. This would have been, and I'm going to give my age away, in the early 50s. <laughs> no saying and, that. Uh, mid, late, early to mid 50s. Right. And um, it was thought for premature ba infants that uh, you put them in an incubator. And what they discovered is that the, ex the oxygen levels in the incubator uh, were causing blindness. As a matter of fact, it's a condition called, at least at that time, was called retrolental fibroplasia. Oh, it was a mouthful. And it was a leading cause of blind, one of the leading causes of blindness and visual impairment uh, in the uh, early 50s, early to mid 50s, maybe even back into the late 40s, before they realized that there was a correlation between the oxygen levels. And of course, they began to monitor those more closely. Sure. And so, uh, but it was due to excessive oxygen levels in, in the incubator uh, as I was premature. I see. So you were blind at birth then? Uh, pretty much. Um, gotcha. I guess you could get into the argument, well, was he blind before he was exposed to the oxygen, if you follow what I'm trying to say. So there might have been, a, you know, a few minutes or hours or something. Gotcha. We'll never know that. But yes, I've been blind all my life. So yeah, so basically since birth. Well, um, exactly. just out of curiosity, Rick, uh, when and how did you initially discover your calling to become a teacher? Well, I don't I don't recollect the exact time. Um, I think it was always something that maybe inside me uh, I had thought about. Uh, I, uh, of course, as I say, um, in those days, uh, the uh, school, the schools, we didn't have uh, public education in, in terms of, we had public education, but we didn't have uh, the protections to allow mainstreaming in, in the public schools. I mean, it did occur to some degree, but, but by and large, most people, most students at that time uh, attended uh, the schools for the blind, schools for the deaf. Mm -hmm. And so, um, of course, I, um, I went to the West Virginia School for the Blind, and I think when I was there, I, it probably entered my mind. But to sure. be honest with you, by the time I got to college, I had kind of changed my mind, and I started out majoring in uh, business administration, and oh, I neat. I kind of liked that, but I guess there was always that calling or that inkling that that wasn't where I wanted to be. One, uh, you know, I was really, I had the opportunity to take a couple of classes in my freshman year on, on computer programming. This would have been the mid 1970s actually 1973 sure so it wouldn't have been the mid 1970s early 1970s and uh, so um, but back in those days you know the computers were the old mainframes uh, uh, the, the programming and everything was done by punch cards so as far as being accessible they really weren't back then not 
what we have today. Oh no. And so, you know, I had to hire help to get the cards punched and, but it was a nice experience. And I learned a little bit about programming during the process, That's but, cool. uh, but I, I just decided that really wasn't my place, although I was interested in the technology of computers. And so I, I think it was the second semester of my freshman year, maybe the first semester of my sophomore year, I changed my major to education and Honestly. really never looked back after that. Well, that's cool. So first semester, sophomore year. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about your uh, career in education here shortly. But now, as you, uh, as you mentioned, you uh, received a quality K-12 education from the West Virginia School for the Blind. Now, that's in Charleston, correct? No, it's actually in a small town called Romney. It's Romney. A small, oh, yeah, okay. it's a small town. Charleston is in the western part of West Virginia, close, really not too far from the Ohio-Kentucky border, maybe an hour. Right. Romney is in the eastern panhandle, close to the, um, uh, close to the Maryland-Virginia border. In fact, it was only oh, 28 sure. miles. So it was about uh, 300 miles from, from, uh, from the Charleston area. Uh, is to where the school and well the school's still there today and unfortunately back in that time uh, there weren't the interstate roads so it was a 300 mile drive along very hilly winding uh, very crooked roads um, yes <laughs> um, that trip today i think uh, i've only been back a few times since i graduated but that trip you know and, and today I think takes about four, four and a half hours because you can pretty well get um, interstate all the way from Charleston to within about 28 miles of where the school is now. Now it's oh, very, it's very wow. rural rugged part of it through Western Maryland outside of Morgantown, but it's, but you know, it's, it's at least interstate quality roads. So sure. that makes a huge difference uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in getting back and forth. I remember my mom and dad uh, would leave. Uh, there were a group of parents that would take turns transporting. No, there were four or five families that went together. There, I mean, there were other families in the Charleston area, but about four or five of them got together and they would, for example, my parents, if, if my dad happened to be off, usually he did the Sunday trips in all honesty, but like if a parent was free in the middle of the week, that parent would go get a group of us, like for oh, Thanksgiving God. or Christmas right or or summer or whatever and then the other parent uh, you know another one of the other four or five parents went together would then uh, take us back on Sunday or you know you know and so they tried to take turns because really and they would make the trip in you know one day which made, made it for them a 12-hour trip because you know six hours each one and that didn't count if they you know spend an hour or two between you know helping unpack or sure yeah, gas so, or whatever. So. Right. So, <laughs> so it became probably a 14 or 15 hour day. Sure. Well, at least you had the parent rotation then. Now, did you, exactly. uh, did you uh, come home about once or twice a month or every weekend or how that? Not, not in those days. They do now. But <laughs> in those days, most students went home at Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter and summer break. 
Oh, okay. Otherwise, there were, there were a few students that only went home at Christmas break and summer break. The school provided, or the state, whoever, provided transportation for all students to go home for Christmas and to go home for summer. Oh, God. They chartered buses. If you went any other time, your parents either came to get you or you know, they would get you a bus ticket to go. But for those, unfortunately, for those few students, there were a few students that I'm aware of who only got to go home at, uh, at Christmas and, and um, Christmas and summer break. Christmas, Christmas and summer break. Well, I'll tell you, that's... A it's quite different now. I think they go, I think they now go every two weeks, although I can't say that with with certainty, but I think it's every two weeks they go now. I think you're right. Everybody. I think, think there's some systems that send a bus up there every Friday, maybe if they're real close. Well, in Kentucky, they do it. Every, in Kentucky, they actually do do it every week. In West Virginia, I think it's every two. Oh, okay. Every two over in West Virginia. <laughs> gotcha. Well, those were uh, a fun and uh, challenging in some respects 13 years, but I want you to talk a little bit, if you would, about your. Uh, journey through the West Virginia School for the Blind. And uh, tell us what you enjoyed most about this experience. Well, I started there um, in, in kindergarten. Right. Uh, obviously, it was um, kind of, I think anybody who leaves home at, you know, at kindergarten's age, five, six years old, uh, could be a little bit traumatic, but oh, no soon got, I soon got adjusted to that. Uh, I enjoy, you know, it was a nice, uh, you know, it was an, a nice place to go to school. Um, the, um, we had, there were a lot, they had a lot larger student population back then. As I say, nowadays, a lot of students are put in the public schools, but back then, they weren't necessarily. I think, uh, I'm thinking that when I started there, we had about a hundred, uh, in West Virginia, unlike Kentucky, the schools for the deaf and blind are on the same campus oh uh -huh. now, in, now in kentucky they're on separate campuses right um, but in west virginia they're on the same campus in romney and uh, i think we had about 120 to 130 visually impaired students and maybe two to three hundred hearing impaired students okay so about four um, together. yeah and today i think i Someone recently told me, I think that the two schools combined this coming year will have about 60, 70, 80 students. Okay, um, as more people are being put in public schools. Exactly. Right. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, but it was a good 12, you know, 13 years. I had a, a lot of good teachers, um, a lot of good experiences. Uh, of course, learned Braille, uh, travel skills with the cane there. Right. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed a lot of years there. I participated in a lot of activities. I did some music. I wasn't good at it, but I, you know, I, I played in the <laughs> band. I really, for one year, I wasn't that great at music. Uh, uh, hey, you dabbled in it. That's what counts. I dabbled in it and <laughs> took some piano lessons. Um, also, um, I did not try to sing in the chorus. Um, they did have a chorus there. Um, and in addition, uh, I did, did a little bit of running. We had a track team and a wrestling team and I participated on those teams, uh, some, 
wasn't very athletic, but but it was a good experience for me, and and uh, and I would do it again, you know, if I were to go back and relive things. Right. But I well, was able to do a lot of things. Uh, got a, uh, of course, we had a lot of other classes. Pian I did a little bit of piano tuning. I learned to. Back in those days, they taught like things like basket weaving. I never did the basket weaving. I did chair caning. Chair caning. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, that's putting bottoms and backs in older type chairs. You've probably seen them that have woven bottoms and backs. Um, there are several different styles of those. In fact, one of the things, um, after I took those classes, I worked and made considerable money a few summers doing chairs for people. Oh, so that served you well. <laughs> it did. Um, so I had a lot of good experiences there, and I think I got a you know, pretty good education. If there's maybe a downside, of course, we didn't we, – today, a lot of – even the Kentucky school, you know, that, some of those kids will go out for um, advanced classes and things. Um, oh, they yeah, didn't do a lot of that back school. then. Because one of the downsides of even if you've got 120 students, that's over 12 grades or 13 grades with kindergarten. So, you know, the class size, you know, you might have, well, depending, but you could have anywhere from three or four people to, let's say, 15 in a class. It varied from year to year. Sure. But one of the downsides of that, of, of all that, while, while you get some good individualized instruction, is they obviously can't offer the maybe the diversity of classes, you know, maybe four or five foreign languages or, right. or maybe more advanced mathematics. Yeah, we, and we had geometry, algebra one and algebra two. I don't think we ever had trigonometry, for example, and our foreign language for the most part was Spanish, although I, they did do a little bit of German toward the end of my time there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, Spanish does seem to be the most dominant in, in but, most places. But throughout all that, you know, there, there are some limitations uh, if you get uh, down to it as far as the types of offerings that they could make given the class size right. and there you know and you also didn't have things like internet and that you know where today you could plug into all kinds of options you know so, that's true too <laughs> oh it's quite different back then yes indeed well it sounds like you certainly made the most of it and we're glad to hear that now you completed your undergraduate studies at uh, fairmont state college in west virginia so um just out of curiosity what were some of your uh, biggest challenges in transitioning from the West Virginia School for the Blind over to Fairmont State. Well, going from a school that had, you know, a couple of hundred students or well, actually 120 on the blind because the campuses were kind of separate, although they were on the same campus. So, you know, class size, I mean, Fairmont State had about four or 5,000 students. It wasn't an overly, you know, real large college, but it wasn't small either. Sure. So the numbers were quite different, of course, uh, being at a public uh, college uh, like that because it's a state run it's actually a university now oh fairmont state university today mm -hmm. <laughs> but but regardless it it uh you know it it was pretty large and there were there were a few visually impaired students but let's say maybe five six seven eight of us on campus uh, okay. so there were, you know it was, but that's relatively relatively small number and 
when you looked at, you know, there were 4,000 or so students there. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty small, so, small so ratio. It was different, uh, you know, uh, having to compete, com, um, compete and, and deal with uh, a, a much larger student population, regardless of whether there was vision involved or not. And, and also the class sizes were larger and, and, you know, things weren't necessarily geared towards somebody with a visual impairment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things weren't in Braille, things weren't um, didn't necessarily have uh, adaptations to materials like you would at the School for the Blind. Now, that doesn't mean that things weren't adapted. Uh, Fairmont State had had some history with visually impaired students. One of the things that colleges have today that a lot of colleges did not have then, you have disability services offices on campus. Right, disability service offices. Uh, and back then that really did not exist but as i say fairmont state was good in certain respects because they had had several visually impaired students over the years and there had been some efforts to for example they had set up a volunteer reading program uh, where they had readers from the public that came in and volunteered to read books on tape and then they also worked with the local school systems and some of the like National Honor Society students. Uh, they worked with some of those for, I guess, high school credit where they could come and do some reading for us. Uh, oh, that's so, neat. So they had, but, but it was different because you were, as a student, uh, I was responsible for making my needs known. Whereas with the disability services offices, they're kind of that, mediator or that go-between today yeah, middleman if you will <laughs> um, for example i would each spring get my schedules or before each semester get my schedules find out where the professors were located go talk to them i'm going to be in your class next semester can you uh, what books are you going to use do you mind if i record your class how are we going to handle exams all that footwork was done by the you know, by myself or whoever, you know, the student happened to be, we, we would do all that work ourselves. Um, gotcha. And order the books and, right. and learned a lot of good self-advocacy skills. And, oh, and I can imagine. And, um, but in addition to that, I think um, another thing that happened uh, is I managed to become pretty close friends with a few, not all, but a few of the professors that I probably would not have necessarily done uh, had, had I not been working with them through the details of, you know, how to modifications and yeah, and how to and work so on. different um, assignments and so, so forth. So it was a good lesson in self-advocacy. And uh, so sure. for me, it was, it, yet it was different because you know, at the School for the Blind, those things were kind of taken care of. So that made it different as well. But it was, wasn't necessarily, I mean, I think we can all, anybody who's been to college probably has, some, you know, some tales, nightmares to talk about, whether you're <laughs> sure. impaired or sighted or not. <laughs> that kind of comes have, with the territory. You do, because you have good and bad professors. And so, oh, yeah. Uh, but by and large, I was able to make a lot of good uh, friends with some 
professors. Uh, had one professor, for example, in, in an economics class. I mentioned that I'd started out in business administration. Right. And I had a had one professor. Um, I had a I had a kit that you that could be used to do like raised line drawings. It used to have paper, real thin sheets of paper. It looked like a clipboard. Um, and you you had these real thin like plastic sheets. I think it was called mylar. M I think it's M Y L A R, but I might be wrong about that. It was real thin, and you had a pen, and this clipboard had like a rubberized backing. And when you drew on that, it created raised lines. Oh, neat! And so this uh, this professor for this one of my economics classes. There were all kinds of drawings that he would put on the board daily. And an example of one of the neat relationships that formed is this professor would always invite me in before or after class, and he would sit down with me, make the drawings on that board, and explain them to me. Oh, cool. So you could feel them mm -hmm. and sort of trace them and, and right. hear his explanations. Well, right. well that, was, uh, that was neat. Now, did, um, did the professors generally read the exams to you? Is that how you handled well, that? Well, that was an interesting experience. Uh, sometimes <laughs> I had readers that went with me. Um, student other students at the college because we lined up some volunteer readers gotcha. in fact there was a there was a lady at one of the dorms one of the ladies over one of the dorms one of the I'll call it house parents or whatever uh adults over one of the dorms oversaw the volunteers so she coordinated uh, all the for those of us who are visually impaired we could go to her and say i need a reader for english class at one o'clock on wednesday afternoon can you find somebody okay. and she'd see to it that, that and she would uh, line up uh, somebody um there were were other instances where the professor read the exam uh, i had one professor i liked the fellow but it may have been the worst accommodation ever um <laughs> because he gave pop quizzes and the way he chose to give us his pop quizzes is he would give the quiz the class the written test quiz you know like 10 questions or five they were unannounced uh -huh. pop quizzes he would give the cl class the test or the quiz and it'd be announced you know, the, today we're having a quiz as i say they were unannounced until you got to class that day so you always had to be on your toes but the way we had to take them he would wait till everybody took the quiz take up the test and then make us take it orally before the whole class <laughs> Oh, goodness. So you had to take your, <coughs> your pop quizzes in front of everybody. And so that was, excuse me. That could be a bit intimidating, I'm sure. That was kind of intimidating in <laughs> retrospect. No doubt. <laughs> but, uh, but, but in defense of the professor, probably had we discussed it with him, he might have done it differently because he was a very nice gentleman and probably just didn't even think about it. And I'm not so sure we, other than being somewhat terrified well terrified is not the right words you know it, it, it pray under a lot of pressure yeah. um, <laughs> a little uh, uneasiness so <laughs> I, I would suspect that had we done a better job of self-advocacy and explained the situation he because he was a nice gentleman and probably just didn't think about it but it was a, <laughs> not necessarily the best accommodation i've ever seen yeah well, <laughs> but <laughs> but i but but for the most part my accommodations you know went very well i had you know, people uh, were very receptive to like having their classes recorded and on and on and on. So it, it worked out very nicely.
Well, that's that's great. It sounds like to me your your self advocacy was uh, all in all pretty good. Now I know in graduate school you um, you hired readers, didn't you? I did. Um, I hired uh, readers. I went to graduate school at George Peabody in Nashville. Yeah, which is now part of Vanderbilt. It is. It, is, it sure is. And um, I hired readers. I think I had about fifteen or twenty readers. I, I po at the beginning of each semester or at least each school year because some would carry on from semester to semester I would I would post and I always had more readers than I needed but part of the problem is when you're hiring readers to do things whether it be give read exams or just read materials you one you have to have enough readers but also you know their their schedules vary too because it was just other students so for you know uh, you know, uh, some of the readers may have class at the same time you do, so they couldn't necessarily go help you, you know, read an exam for you or, yeah, or they couldn't go to the library and read to you. And my, you know, my, uh, my graduate school, there was a tremendous amount of reading. Um, I remember um, that um, that one semester I was working, I had to do a practicum in a school in Nashville. And so I had to, I was out there from like 8.30 to noon every day for oh, the whole uh -huh. semester. And then I was taking, I think it was 12 graduate hours of school. And just one professor in one class assigned, I don't know, I wanna say about 5,000 pages of reading for his class alone outside reading for the semester. Oh goodness. So I literally spent my pretty much my whole weeks in graduate school, at least a lot of the second semester in particular. Um, my Saturdays and Sundays were spent in the library um, with readers. I mean, I would literally, I might meet a reader at 10, 10 have another one come in at noon. So they another take one turns, at two. Yeah. Um, so while I had, as I don't know the number, but I'm thinking it's like 15 to 20 readers on my list. But that just gave me the flexibility to find people who might be free when I needed them. Yeah, and when one wasn't available, you had. <laughs> and you then, had and then when you get that number of readers, whatever, you have some people who can read. Well, some, some really weren't, in all honesty, weren't good readers. But there again, too, there were also instances that one person may be good, let's say, in math. Another person might not be good in math, but might be good in something scientific. Or, sure. or whatever. And so once you got to learn the backgrounds and the reading habits of the readers, sometimes that came into play as to what, who you selected to do what, you know, help you, you, you read <laughs> what. You learned what everybody was most comfortable reading. Exactly, what they were comfortable <laughs> reading and what they could do the best job at reading. Yeah. Um, and, and then you got into things, for example, if you're spending time in libraries, not all readers have the same library skills. I mean, I can, you know, I was the boss. I said, you, you, you need to go look in this section, but they need to be able to, you know, read the signage and, and use that signage that they put up in libraries to get you to the right spot. And I'm not just talking about books, but, you know, looking, knowing what section to at least look in, you know, I, we need to go to this section, uh, or we need to go uh, to a section on, you know, bibliography, bibliographies, most people would know that, but at least they need to be competent in using the, you know, the, the, the layout of the library and that, because I couldn't help right. them very much with that. <laughs> no, but no, I would no. direct them, you know, go look on 
the uh, yeah this or that section or mm -hmm. this and that part of the library exactly and, yeah. or go look at the i think it's called microfish the the storage that was used a lot of times for is like a microfilm where like old newspapers and things would be photographed oh, yeah. on film microfilm and so and micro microfish were both big back in the day yep uh, so that was that was interesting but uh you got to know a lot of people that way. I did. <laughs> so, never a bad thing. Now, uh, speaking of your time at Peabody, you uh, had the unique opportunity of being there during the memorable blizzard of 1977. Actually, actually, uh, I wasn't um, because I didn't start until the fall of 77. Oh, okay. But I will, t but I will tell you that during the during the spring of 1977, I was still at Fairmont State. I graduated in May. Okay. So and it was an extremely cold winter. I lived, uh, I lived probably a mile off campus during my junior and senior years. And so I, I walked to and from class. And back then, it was really rare to have classes canceled. I'm not so sure in the four years I was at Fairmont State campus. I remember they canceled class one day because the power for the whole campus was out. And that uh, may have been the only day that I recall. It was extremely rare. Now, I don't remember so much about the snow. There was snow. I don't remember if we had a lot of it, but I do remember that in the spring, well, winter, it wasn't spring, but it was in January, early February. I don't remember the exact dates. Mm -hmm. It was extremely cold. I'm talking. I think, you know, the actual air temperature was probably, you know, 20 below zero or so, but there was a very stiff wind. And I remember one morning the chill factor was, I don't know, 60 or 70 below. So a lot of our listeners have never felt anything like that, I'm sure. And, uh, and so keep in mind, I lived about a mile off campus, about a 15, 12 to 15 minute walk. Sure. And I remember starting out one morning, the two guys that lived in the house where we lived had late classes and I, I read, and I had early classes. It was my, the semester I was getting ready to do my student teaching. And so I need to be on campus at eight o'clock and I hate to get those guys up to take me up to campus. Right. So a lot of mornings I would get up early. I was an early riser anyway. I'd get up and go up to the campus and eat breakfast in the cafeteria before classes started. So this particular morning when it was so cold, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go up and get breakfast and what, you know, and, and go into class. I won't get those, you know, one of them up to drive me up there. So I, I started out and I got about halfway and, oh, I was so cold. That wind was blowing in my face. Uh, I wasn't sure if I could make it back home, but I was halfway uh, the only advantage to turning around going back home is the wind would be to my back. Yeah. And I got to a, still but I got to, there was like a little convenience store about halfway. And I, I went, I stopped there thinking, and my thinking all along is I would stop there and get warm. And when I walked up to the door, it was locked. And I oh. thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> no. And so, um, but fortunately, about that time, the lady came around to open the store. I was never so glad to see a, another person in my life because oh, I then I was able to go in and get uh, <laughs> get uh, get warmed up. So, but yeah, that was an interesting uh, winter, and extremely cold. 
I remember walking back home some days later and it was, uh, I thought, man, it must be 40 degrees out here. I was almost sweating and got into the house and it was 13, turned on the radio and it was 13 degrees. See, so, that 13 felt warm. Didn't it, it felt warm. <laughs> So, so when 13 feels warm that's that's how you know it's uh, it's been cold it and felt warm. <laughs> yeah and uh and after that uh at peabody i bet uh, you probably never experienced anything quite like that no <laughs> although i do remember at peabody it was a very at least for nashville was a very snowy winter when i was there in 77 78 it was um uh, Sure, I think at one a... time, I think at one time we missed about 13 or 14 days of school that Metro Nashville schools were out of school. So it was pretty snowy. Of course, it didn't take a lot to cancel snow. No, I but, bet Nashville uh, called off a but lot. I'm thinking, but I'm thinking we had seven or eight inches, but it was enough to shut things down for quite a while. See, 77 was just a, <laughs> a snowy year for everybody it seems like <laughs> that's for sure now uh, needless to say the uh, the process of seeking and obtaining jobs is much more different um now than it was when you graduated so why don't you tell us um, how you learned of a teaching vacancy in good old western kentucky and well we ended up in owensboro i worked with uh, i always worked closely with the placement office on campus at peabody Oh, uh-huh. Uh, I'd had a professor back in my undergraduate days uh, talk to our class about, you know, job seeking. And and one of the statements he made has always stuck with me and sticks with me today that you ought to treat getting a job a job in it of itself. Yeah, I don't know that that's exactly – I don't know that that's the exact words he used, but that was what he meant, that you, you need to take it seriously and – and so when I got ready to seek employment after, as I was nearing graduation, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I typed out my resume, went and had it professionally printed. And I think I sent out about 150 resumes all over the country. Oh, goodness. About the only place I didn't send resumes, if it was too far north, uh, north being like northern ohio pennsylvania right how can uh, michigan, i that? <laughs> you know michigan that wasn't for me yeah so i, I worked very closely with the placement office of peabody and uh, and you know you know there were always listings there and and i would talk to those people and send out resumes uh, as i said i think i sent maybe 100 150 resumes out um so quite a in few. Fact, <laughs> in fact, I just a few weeks ago ran across a copy of my old original resume, and I can tell, I can tell it is one of those because it was printed on kind of a rough paper. I had it professionally printed, sure. and so it had a unique texture. You know, the paper does, and so right. <laughs> uh, I actually ran across one of my old original resumes a few weeks ago. As that I was, was kind of nostalgic for you, I'm sure. It was. So so. So I, you know, I applied all these places, had numerous interviews, had uh, at least one job offer in Nashville that didn't come uh, to into being, you know, it didn't pan out. Uh-huh. Um, there were some principals from, uh, from New Orleans who were living oh. in the apartment complex uh, that I was in that came to Peabody in the summers for training. And one of them, 
told me about a job in New Orleans, so I applied for it. Sure. Um, as I say, I applied for numerous jobs through the placement office. Eventually, as I say, there was one offer in Nashville that actually had it worked out, I wouldn't have finished graduate school till the following year because I was going to have to leave a semester early. But the classes I needed, actually only needed one, was going to be offered in the fall and the evening so I could have completed it. But but it would have involved me quitting my, you know, my my schooling. Yeah, you would have had to quit full-time I'd school. school yeah. Quit full-time. And uh, so, but that one didn't work out. And so I, as I say, I had all these applications out there. I remember talking to a guy in Colorado. I actually rode a Greyhound bus to Memphis and interviewed over there with the Shelby County Schools. Oh, did you? Um, and uh, had some interviews in Nashville and on and on. Talked to a guy in North Carolina about jobs. So I talked with people all over the country and and some I went for interviews. Memphis, for example, I didn't go to Colorado or North Carolina. Those didn't work out. And then I also came with a, 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 a la another lady in the vision program and uh, at the at Peabody had a um, an interview in Owensboro, and they actually they actually um, we we our, she and her boyfriend gave me a ride up. So we came up and interviewed for the same job together. Oh, isn't that something? <laughs> and uh, so that's how I got to Owens. Well, that's how I found out about Owensboro. I'd not heard of it. But so I came up here. As I said, I had all these other job in, uh, applications out there. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually inter uh, uh, offered a job on the same day I had job offers from New Orleans here in Owensboro and in Northern Kentucky. I don't remember. It's one of those cities in the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area. I was oh, in, so on the three Kentucky in the side. same day. So I had three job offers in the same day. Two of them, though, I had not physically been to. They were just kind of done remotely, if you will. Yeah, and long distance I, I was impressed with Owensboro, and so i that's how I ended up here. Now, uh, for those who've never had personal acquaintances with um, – someone who has a, a braille background why don't you give us uh, an overview rick of the uh, resources and the the strategies you used in uh, teaching students how to read and write braille well uh interestingly uh, i was called a teacher of the visually impaired mm -hmm. and our role it changed some what over the years but we, we we were trained to teach anything from assistive technology we were responsible for ordering braille and large print materials like textbooks and so on for students sure um, we were responsible for uh, of course teaching braille teaching them how to use the technology teaching independent living skills uh, you know um, now we didn't get too much into actual cooking things like that a lot of our students to get those skills would go for short course at school for the blind sure okay but but um but we taught uh, a whole host of things in fact somebody asked me what i did one time and at that time i was working with a student who had a lot of needs and so i was working with her on making a bed and going to another student that was taking advanced algebra and oh. so <laughs> talk about and, one end of the gamut to the other and so and so over the years, I did a whole, uh, a, a lot of things. Now, uh, 
we we did have a few Braille students. Um, it is interesting because for the first few years, we didn't have any Braille students. Um, most of our students had some vision. And then we got to a point that we had a few, uh, it, it just kind of goes in cycles. In fact, I'm surprised because of course, you know, McLean County here is very much, much smaller than Owensboro. Right. And uh, we got a grant back in the mid 1980s that um, had a bunch of technology including a couple of braille printers and one of the one of the requirements of that grant is you had to have some braille students well we technically didn't have any braille students at that time and so i and and neither did davis county and mclean county had i don't remember i'm thinking it was three there were definitely two but i think there were three braille students that's ironic and so we coordinated things with the teacher over there and I went over and so they got to take advantage of the technology and I did some training of the students and, 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 you know, and on the, you know, on the equipment and so on. So, well, that's uh, nice. but, but then there were other times that we had Braille students. So yeah, it just, it kind of go, you know, we go and come as to, as to how many Braille students we had. Now, uh, did you take did you take buses between the schools? Because I know you'd have to go to several throughout the day a lot of times. I took the I used the city bus oh, okay. um, here, which was pretty good. In fact, but I will say this: uh, probably one of the most discouraging things when I moved to Owensboro, uh, in all honesty, is the trans transit system here at that time was well terrible would be probably be putting it good <laughs> compared to um, nashville i'm sure anyway well but it, it really was not good because <laughs> they, they well one thing they had old buses right you couldn't count on and there were days that they had five bus routes and maybe only three buses running so there would be times that you got to get a bus and none would show up because they were all broken down <laughs> that's sad and uh, fortunately owensboro is small enough that in some instances you could walk between schools uh, there's a few a couple of them are next door to each other but there are also some that are you know let's say three or four blocks and i've always been a pretty good traveler so if the bus didn't show up i'd oftentimes just hoof it i might be a little bit late but the uh, oh i see so you were because so you were in walking distance a lot of times uh, well it, it, i made it walking distance because i was <laughs> bound and determined not to fail and to be honest with you, you there were a few times that i'd just call a cab and say you know i, I need to I, you know and i don't know if the cab service was that great but at least they got me to where i needed to be and uh, sure and and uh, and i just i was concerned about keeping uh, my job and so it was just something um, you know, I made ends meet. <laughs> you just made it work. <laughs> well, it was never, it was never acceptable to me. It was never acceptable. And for me to say, well, I can't get there. So, you know, um, that's just not in me to, to do. Yeah. Instead and, it was, uh, how can I get there? <laughs> so my question was always, how can I get there? Now, sometimes it wasn't the most efficient way. Right. But, um, I, I never made it an excuse, well, I can't get there. That was just never an acceptable way <laughs> for me uh, to handle a situation. <laughs> you um, found a way to do what you had. I found a way to do what I needed to do. <laughs> now, I will add, you know, I'm painting a terrible picture of the Owensboro Transit System. The system has improved a thousand percent. I mean, any transit oh, yeah. system you could find problems with. 
<laughs> but it's reliable today. They have two-way communication with the buses. So if one's broken down or held up by a train, they know that and can, you know, uh, move buses around. Uh, they uh -huh. have, they have, uh, I don't know how many buses they have. I think we're, there are six or seven routes now. I don't know how many buses, but I think they have a couple of extra buses. You know, you don't have where all the, half the equipment's down in a day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been the case really for probably they really got a new fleet of buses. I started here in 1978 and they got their first new fleet of buses, which really improved things. And I think it was 1980. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I think people, regardless of where you live, every community has its own transportation issues. But I just wanted to be sure that, you know, I painted this gloomy picture and, and it was gloomy when I first came here, but the transportation system, while as in probably every other transportation, the, country isn't perfect it's much improved over what it used to be well believe it or not rick bogus and i had such an enjoyable and insightful conversation we actually ended up talking for another half hour so what i've decided to do i'm going to bring you the final 30 minutes of my conversation with rick on next week's program and make sure you're here because we've got plenty more to learn about this inspirational individual, we will compare the manner in which he learned Braille to the manner in which his students learned Braille. Plus, we'll get some gratifying stories from his career as an educator. Rick will discuss SAVVY, that stands for Support Alliance for the Visually Impaired. I'm actually a part of that group, and we will learn all about that next week. Plus, Mr. Bogus will offer up some words of wisdom for those in the visually impaired community in pursuit of their goals and endeavors. I'm sure glad that Rick could spare some time to enlighten us on his school background, not only as a student, but also as a teacher of the visually impaired. And if you'd like to nominate an exceptional educator, you know how it's done. Bluegrassblabbing at gmail.com, B-L-U-E-G-R-A-S-S, B-L-A-B-B-I-N, at gmail.com. You can also send me a message via the Blabbing in the Bluegrass Facebook page. Let me know about this teacher or teachers making a difference in your life, and I will do everything in my power to get them the recognition and honor that they so rightfully deserve. And before we uh, put the caps on this week's show, I have the long-awaited answer to this week's Bluegrass Brain Buster, and it's only fitting that we... Uh, focus on the song Happy Birthday to You, as it is the state of Kentucky's 229th birthday. But anyway, that famous song that we hear at almost every birthday party, around the block and far beyond, Happy Birthday to You, that song was born right here in the Commonwealth. Believe it or not, it was written by two sisters from Louisville. Your job was to name those two sisters. Again, identify the sisters from Louisville who wrote the song Happy Birthday to You, which would become famous across the nation and around the world. Your answer? Mildred and Patty Hill. Back in 1896, these two sisters in Louisville were brainstorming about songs to sing to uh, Patty's kindergarten class. Patty was a kindergarten teacher and they came up with a simple song with a simple melody. Originally, it was called Good Morning to All. Good morning to all. But whenever a student had a birthday, they would celebrate by uh, substituting the Happy Birthday to You lyrics in place of 
good morning to all. And that's how we get happy birthday to you. So the origins of the song date all the way back to 1896, thanks to Mildred and Patty Hill. Yep, the Derby City can rightfully claim this world-famous song that makes virtually every birthday party complete. Oh, the things you learn here on Blabbing in the Bluegrass. At least, that's our aim. So come on back next week for another Bluegrass Brain Buster, along with plenty more insightful conversation. It certainly will not be the same without you occupying your assigned seat at my table, okay? But between now and then, you know what you gotta do, guys and gals. Keep laughing, keep smiling, and keep blabbing in the bluegrass. Cause we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide, cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste.